people. It's your girl, Fredrika McClary Easley, back with another episode of Bum, 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 Bum. The people are blunt. So, housekeeping. Y'all already know we're on all the platforms YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Prime. Please check us out. Thumbs up, like, subscribe, do all of the good things. Um, also, the people's ecosystem. Check us out. Check out the website. Um, we have our CBD line. So here's one of the examples, our transdermal patch, which is amazing. This helps me right now because I am prego. Um, so it helps me with some of the back pain, uh, as well as going over to Tosi Treats. So I told y'all, if you're in Cali, we launched our edibles. These are amazing. It's new technology um, through Unlock It that is fast acting and is also attached to a protein. So your body knows what to do with it. Treat yourself. Why not? And without further ado, because I'm not going to do a lot of talking, I want to dig into this. Um, we have a very special guest, y'all. This is Madame Cannoli. Uh, you know, without an introduction being needed, but um, her better half, or I would, I would actually say she was the better half. <laughs> you know Generous. the other half, right? Because women, you know, women, we are the foundation, right? Like we make it possible um, even when we have well-known spouses, for them to do what they do, right? So, Madame Cannoli, uh, better half of the late, the great Frenchie Cannoli, is in the building. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm good, and you? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Um. Thank you so much for, for reaching out um, with this fantastic news that we're about to jump into, and I'm so excited to talk about it. So um, we know that July of 2021 um, was when the cannabis world, you know, and you lost Frenchie, right? Mm -hmm. um, meant so much to so many. And so we are coming up on this unveiling. I want you to be able to talk about it, um, of what, uh, and, and I guess in a couple, I guess fairly soon will be released. April 29th, yeah. Yeah, what's the date again? April 29th. April 29th, April 29th. All right, everybody mark your calendars. So April 29th, what are we going to be privileged to? So we're going to be doing the worldwide online release of Frenchie Dreams of Hashish, the documentary film that Frenchie had been working on with our filmmaker, Jake Remington, since 2017, uh, end of 16, 17. So um, yeah, uh, we did the uh, premiere, you know, in-person premiere for 710 last year. I've done a little road show, went to some of the major cities in the US and Canada, and now it's time to release it out into the internet. Um, it'll be on Vimeo. And so that'll be, you know, very stable, easy platform for, for people to get a ticket. I've been saying, you know, the ticket's going to be very reasonably priced. It'll be like buying Frenchie a coffee. Um, because we're using we're using um, the funds from the film, some of the funds from the film to support uh, 
uh, project that we're doing with some of the farmers featured in the film yeah. to study uh, this concept of cannabis terroir. And uh, for those not familiar, terroir is a French concept that says some places, there's something very special about what's in the earth, what's in the air, what's in the water, and also the soul of the farmer who's nurturing the specific plant that grows there, that the public recognizes that it's better quality, that it has better flavor. And so in France, the government took this concept and they created a thing called appellations, yeah. which basically means that the farmers are then given the legal right to say, only my product can become Bordeaux wine, for example, or could become Roquefort cheese, which is actually the oldest um, uh, product that was legally recognized that way. That happened in, I think it was 1460 something. The King of France or uh, somebody in a position of power had so much appreciation for the cows that ate the grass in that specific area that they started this precedent of acknowledging that other people shouldn't be able to call their product the same thing because it confused the marketplace. And yeah. so those farmers were working so hard to, you know, kind of nurture this plant that was producing this thing that everybody recognized as superior. There needed to be a way to protect them from a marketing perspective. In France, Frenchie always said this was the way to protect our legacy farmers all over the world, that we needed to follow this blueprint that the French government had done with wine so successfully and use it with cannabis. You know, um, it makes perfect sense because, you know, I know that Frenchie was really big on craft quality and preserving mm -hmm. and there's this idea and we're, we're seeing this where even um plants or seeds weed seeds or plants are taken other places yeah. um but it doesn't complete the package no. right because when you're making something all things have to factor in mm -hmm. it's the same way it's the reason why I can never get my roast to taste like my mother's roast. You know what I mean? It's like, Absolutely. It's like, I've helped her make this roast. Okay. I know everything that goes into it, but for some reason, it does not come out the same, you know? That whole thing, like if you've ever lived overseas or you've traveled overseas and you've eaten a cuisine in the place and the flavor is just so amazing and so you come home and you think well i'm going to go to a restaurant that supposedly makes that same cuisine and you eat there and you're so disappointed because it doesn't taste anything alike and there may be that element of being in the environment but there's definitely that element that part of that concept of terroir is that the plants and even the people yes. adapt to the environment that's there um, I don't know if you've ever met Kevin Jodry, a uh, very famous uh, person up north. Uh, he ran the uh, Wonderland Nursery up there for okay. years and years. Okay, yes, I've he heard of him. Amazing theory where he talks about how not only is the cannabis um, responding to the earth that it's growing in, but it's responding to the psychological needs of the humans in the community that live there. Um, and so when he, you know, he talks about 
as a breeder, it's never going to be a one size fits all that the cannabis that the people who live in Seattle are going to optimally need to smoke for their well-being is not the same as the people maybe living in Florida, where the temperatures are vastly different, the lifestyles are somewhat different. And when you start thinking of that and you think of the ability with all we know scientifically now around kind of designer cannabis, it really starts you just like imagining so much potential. My mind is blown with you saying that, with you offering that, because first of all, um, we we know the plant to be a her, right? This is a feminine plant. Yeah. And we know that we are the caregivers, the nurturers. And so now taking it another level, it makes me think of the plant as an empath. So the plant is taking in, to your point, to what you're offering, the plant is taking in everything. Mm -hmm. And so those strains and, you know, and how, and the terpene profiles yeah. and all of that to a certain degree, yes, you know, man manipulation and things of that nature, but it really is what you're saying is the plant reacting to what is needed. Mm -hmm. Well, Frenchie used to say that he was absolutely convinced that all plants had consciousness and that through the use of their terpenes, their smells, um, that they were able to manipulate the mobile beings around them. So the animals and the humans around them to kind of do what they needed to be spread out farther and expand their territory. And when you look at a plant like cannabis, it's so true because she's everywhere all over the world. And it's okay, to some degree, some animals, maybe way back in prehistory, they ate the plant. And then as they walked along, you know, they kind of planted seeds as they went. Right. Humans have also taken her everywhere and, you know, allowed this opportunity for her to respond to so many different terroir and to the needs of so many different human populations. Yeah, so it's really fascinating. I think the thing that would be really interesting would be for people. So back in the day, Frenchie spent about eight years in northern India in the mountains uh, making hand-rub charas. And at one point, he rented a field from local people. And they used to do kind of some minimal planting where they'd break up the soil a little bit, throw the seeds, and then let the rain do the rest. Okay. So after the first year, he asked them to stop doing that to just let the plants to go back to their native wild state to see what would emerge, to see what would respond to, to the terroir. what the weeds would do, because this is known as a weed. So just, let, yeah, it, just exactly. let it flow. So I'd love to see, like, so if we left some cultivars kind of re-natify themselves to different regions, what would they manifest as the understanding of what the humans in that area needed? I'd love to see it. Um, but, but this goes back to why this is so important, right? Why um, the proceeds of how this is, you know, from the proceeds from the documentary being funneled back into the support of small farmers, yes, um, small cultivators, mm -hmm. because this is something that's being lost with mass cultivation, right? With mass production yes. is the ability to allow for these kind of um, this kind of play, 
if you will. Yeah. You know, this kind of freedom to allow the plant to do what it what it wants to do, what it needs to do, as opposed to focusing so much on yield. Right or focusing yeah, also so on the flavor of the month. You yeah. know, when you go to a lot of the dispensaries, it's a bunch of different farmers who have kind of been influenced to grow the same thing. And Frenchie used to say to the people up north, I know that you've got these amazing genetics that your grandfather, you know, somehow has kept from back in the day when he was the person working the farm, that you should really be kind of highlighting that. Yeah. And a little bit. You know, it's kind of topsy-turvy. It should be the farmers educating the public about what might be the best option. And I also think, to your point, too, there's certainly that that um, point about the cultivars, what's being grown, but also about having the quality controlled by those small farmers. Because we all know in those mega grows, in those indoor environments, yep. first of all, it's not the environmentally best option. Yep. Um, and it doesn't grow good cannabis to a large degree. The quality is not there. Um, and I just kind of feel like in the coming zombie apocalypse, we need each village needs its own little, you know, the farmer and the hash maker. We need that autonomy and yeah. self-control uh, to make sure that people have this, this medicine that's so integral to human well-beingness, as Frenchie used to call it. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. There's there's something um, that has to be said about the process being hands on, mm -hmm. you know, um, technology is beautiful in many ways, but there is a difference, you know, there is a different care and love that goes into when you are physically a part of that process. Yeah. Um, I think that that's absolutely, that's absolutely um, something that makes a huge difference. So, so, so Frenchie, you know, started back in 2016, 2017 of, of um, starting on this documentary. And I know you've been along for that entire ride. You know, what was the motivation behind the start of it and how has it been, for you to essentially finish this, you know, and to be a part of bringing it forward. So it kind of, it goes back a little bit to, again, Frenchie, all those travels and his desire to work with uh, side by side with local hash producers to learn their techniques. So a little bit selfishly so that he could smoke the best hash when we were on the beaches in Goa, you know, during the winter. And so when he came here, you know, in the beginning, when he used to attend all the cannabis cups and whatnot, this cute little French guy in colorful colored pants, you know, the young kids would come up to him and be like, hey, what do you do? And he'd be, I'm a hashishi. And they'd be like, what's that? And he's a hash maker. Still don't know because the U.S. war on drugs was so successful that all the major importers of hashish were, you know, in federal penitentiaries. Yeah. So he explained the whole process to them. And most often he would just smoke them out. And so yeah. then when people would have that experience of traditional hashish. Because seeing is believing. Because seeing is yeah. believing. So it's like, let me not tell you. Let me just let you experience it. And I uh, used to say too, 
Nobody ever smokes with their eyes. You know, you really have to taste it, experience it. He used to call it that overall feeling of well-beingness that he really liked with the hashish experience. And so then after the kids would be like, well, you're not in all the dispensaries. I need to learn to do this myself. You know, we're going to have to have some workshops. And so um, the first person he taught to make hashish, you know, like who became like his first kind of trial students was the Dank Duchess. Dank Duchess, yes. yes. Um, and uh, she quickly moved on to, you know, expanding and doing all kinds of amazing things. And then shortly thereafter, he took on a formal apprentice, which was Cherry Blossom Bell. And she actually lived and worked with us for seven years. Um, but parallel to that, while they were doing kind of the, our commercial activity, we would do workshops from time to time, about once a month. And doing those workshops, you know, and we would advertise for them online, people would see it. And he had calls from people in places in countries where it was never going to be legal for them to come. And so they said, you know, we need for you to put something online because we're never going to be able to come to your, your workshop. And at one point he was driving to Humboldt. I remember he came home and he told me I had the most amazing experience. Some kid from Lebanon called me the other day and his family used to make hashish. But because of the war, the war situations that they had there, some knowledge had been lost. Their process had been disrupted. And so I spent about an hour as I was driving north, talking this kid through the technique he needed to use to be able to make hashish the way his grandfather used to do. And so that cemented it for him that we were gonna give back. We were gonna create this series of how to do it yourself hash making videos. And we were gonna put them online for free so that everybody could have them. And as, so we found the, uh, my daughter was a dancer in New York. And so she was in that whole artistic community. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, I was like, so do you know a young video filmmaker that we could work with? And she introduced us to our um, filmmaker, Jake Remington. Okay. And he, um, he followed us to Spanibus that first year because we were doing a workshop there and he filmed the workshop there. And then he came back and filmed a workshop in San Francisco. And as they were doing it, we kept saying, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to do something like Jiro Dreams of Sushi and chronicle like a day in the life of Frenchie. And so one thing led to another and Frenchie took Jake up north with him and without calculating, because we're not that sharp, it ended up being the last year of adult use, in, I mean, medical use in medical. California and the first year of adult use. Mm. And the transition was okay. just so huge you know the impact of adults use was so negative on the farmers all the licensing challenges just everything that went on and so it allowed us to really celebrate those farmers that Frenchie always acknowledged as the source of his quality and also to capture this very important moment in time where we went from a community that had this legacy of quality and beautiful cannabis and allowing a lot of small families, homesteading families to make, you know, a simple living to, you know, total decimation of basically three counties in Northern California. Um, and yeah. How, how, so first of all, how did you and Frenchie meet? Uh, at a full moon party in Nepal. So 
uh, that was back in the day. So I was 19. Frenchie was just turning. He was 22. And he had a friend. They were traveling three men together. And I was by myself. And uh, his friend came up to me and said, we're having a full moon party tomorrow. Wouldn't you like to join us? And of course, when you're young and you're traveling, you know, you yes. those kind of encounters. Yeah. So I went to their full moon party. And they had made a um, infused, they called it a majun, which is kind of a tradition Morocco sweet kind of concoction. But basically they had taken, Frenchie told me later, 100 grams of, of charas, macerated it in some local alcohol, mixed it with a bunch of dried fruit, chopped it all up and served this as kind of candy. And of course, because we hadn't, we didn't have much sweets and stuff when we were up there. And I think we were all a little underfed we all wait, ate way too much. And the only thing I remember of that night, because it was a beautiful full moon night, and then there was the lake behind us and there were the paddy fields in front of us. At some point we got it in our head, we were gonna go look for mushrooms in the paddy field. And I just remember feeling like I was levitating over the paddy fields. That's the only thing I remember of the night. But one thing led to another. I ran into the, the, the two of them four times in India, but in India is a very large country, you know, yeah. like, like the United States, but on the long end, it would have been like if I ran into them in Ohio and Seattle and Texas. And in the last time it was in the souks in Varanasi, which is the very small shopping streets. I uh, yeah. out from one of the stores and pulled me in and it was his friend again. And he said, you have to stop following us. <laughs> and invited me to Frenchie's birthday party, which was gonna be in a few weeks in a very Southern place. So it was like, we met in San Francisco and he's like, oh, by the way, we're gonna be doing his birthday party in New Mexico in a few weeks, join us there. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll try and make it happen. And this is pre-cell phone days. So um, I arranged to take a train the day before the, his birthday. I arrived at sunset, no idea where they were, and in my brain, there was a field of um, banana trees. I don't know why, but in my brain, it was like there are the te temple ruins that they said where they would be. It'll be on the other side of the banana trees. I start walking through the trees, maybe like less than five minutes. I run smack into Frenchie. So this was the universe. Yes, very much so. The universe conspired for your two souls to be together and for y'all to have this amazing journey, right? And interesting, interestingly enough, the journey, you know, it starts with this experience with uh, with the plant. Yes, yeah. With a with a with an edible. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, my goodness. Okay, so so you know. Again, the universe conspires, right? That it's like, hey, we need to capture some things, right? Wouldn't this be cool? You start way before, but things really kind of pick up 2016, 2017. Um, and then we have Frenchie's passing. And now the torch is kind of passed on to you to bring this to fruition. Yes. Yeah. How important was it for you to make sure that this documentary came out 
um, and that it was able to to fulfill the purpose. I, purpose. Yeah, you know, it just feels like behind all of this, there's a you know, like energy stronger than me, almost like the plant is guiding this, you know, if we believed in that, that level of communication and energy. Yeah. Um, of course, it's a great honor to finish this for Frenchie, but it's more important right now at this time in history and the mot his motivation to start with yeah. was never about telling his story. It was really about highlighting the source of quality and inspiring yeah. people to really pay attention to that because part of what we've seen in terms of why has cannabis legalization in California not worked very well from an economic perspective or in Canada for that example uh, matter because those two places for me are the best examples of what not to do in terms of legalizing, you know, moving from a legacy environment to a so-called legal environment. Right. And the problem has been to a large degree because people with no experience with the plant are running these mega grows, these mega entities. And they're looking, you know, they've got a stockbroker or somebody in finance who's only focused on profit. That's looking at ways to cut corner, to minimize expenses, to minimize human input. And all of that is not the best environment for producing the highest quality cannabis. Yeah. And Frenchie used to joke, he said, you know, the, the biggest problem with the rollout in Canada was they didn't get any dope dealers to help them sell the dope. No, um, that's real talk. That's real talk. Yeah. Yeah, that's real talk. Because, you know, I don't think when we're talking about traditional legacy, op legacy operators, we're talking about these small farmers. These are people who it's different for them, right? Like they have literally placed their lives on the line. Yeah. And so there's a different knowledge, appreciation um, of the plant. Okay. And also they've been doing this. Like, if, I mean, if we're giving credit to trial and error, if we're giving credit to, um, to, to operational history, like they have it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that's so frustrating is they didn't have to go far to find expertise. It was there. They just had to ask. Yeah. And I think also the situation that's really detrimental to them was Northern California has been producing some of, if not the best quality cannabis on the planet for the last, you know, 60, 80 years, the consumer marketplace has been very spoiled. The New Yorkers know what's up. All the East Coasters know what's up. They've been smoking that good Cali dope forever. So, you know, you're not going to be able to just try and sell them some cheap Canadian swag or wherever they're going to get their, their mitts from. It's not going to fly. You, you know, we have this conversation. So I'm from I'm from Buffalo, New York, right? I'm from upstate New York. Um, and we have this conversation, right, in terms of um, because New York is is regulating right now. Yeah. And so, you know, people often um, comment on why the legacy market is still overperforming. And um, they make nods to, you know, to um, to health and safety and the testing that's needed. And look, 
I'm in support of testing, right? I'm in support yeah. of it. Yes. However, people have had like e almost everyone in my family smokes weed. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was late to the party um, because the dare era like really did a number on me. Right. Yeah. But I was surrounded by it. And what I understand about having a weed man is that they, they are going to get you the best quality, mm -hmm. right? Because you are their base, right? And so the way that they get more customers is through you bragging about what you've had from them. Right? I mean, it's just like that natural, the way you retain customers is by keeping them happy. Most people are not happy if you sell them garbage and expect them to, to pretend that it's not. Correct. Yeah. And that they're not going to pretend. Why would they? Right. Yeah. So if you, I mean, back in the day, I remember, you know, my people's busting it down and taking the seeds out and, you know, and them talking about, oh, this one was good. This, you know, this, this was, this must be a different batch and, and them having conversations with that weed man. And the weed man being like, all right, I got you. You know, let me, let me check my supplier. Let me make sure, let me see what's going on. So it's a, there was even a different kind of relationship. Yeah. You know what I mean? Between, um, you know, between their weed men and themselves. So to your point, not bringing those people into the fold um, and thinking that consumers, <laughs> from the traditional market are just now going to go into these dispensaries and be okay with BS with increased amounts and with taxes and with, you know, all the other stuff, like the cost of an eighth is crazy. So it's well, like, I think more importantly too, these people have been risking their lives for generations. They've been risking their freedom. And so now, now these people that would have put us in jail five years ago, they get to reap the benefit. Yeah. I'm sorry, please. You yeah. Know. No. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also more, you know, like also importantly, those communities shouldn't be decimated. Yeah. And any of these communities that have been negatively impacted by the war on drugs should have the right to control their destiny now that the environment is so-called legal um without all these crazy you know like so we had 20 years of uh medical cannabis use in california we weren't required to use dispensaries we weren't required to use distributors we could create legal relationships between ourselves and the patients and we could make sure that they had the medicine that they needed on a monthly basis or they could come and see us at cannabis cup events and purchase what they needed there legally through scripts and everything. And then suddenly we go legal and this whole infrastructure has to disappear as if we weren't paying taxes before we were. Um, we weren't paying enough. I, you know, when I look at what I, let's look at like um, the wine industry. Why could a product that can potentially kill people if you consume too much of it if you were a child for example you know alcohol poisoning is a real thing just real talk thing. to anybody who runs a college campus why are they allowed to sell directly to consumers from their farms and these same small cannabis 
farmers that are down the street, literally in California, in the same neighborhoods are not. It makes no sense. Uh, there's still this residual mentality of, you know, uh, the, the frying pan with the the egg. <laughs> <laughs> the egg, you know, that somehow this incredible thing is going to happen. And I guess I'd like to say to people, there are people high around you all day long in positions of authority and positions of responsibility. And they are, they are thriving. They're living their best lives. They're doing what needs to be done. They're taking care of their families. They're earning a living. This, you know, kind of propaganda that cannabis use is going to turn you into a degenerate that lives in a gutter and brings shame to your family is is just that it's some bogus shit hmm. and we really need to get over it that whole stigma we all know that Ensingler he concocted that as another tool in his you know armory to create racist garbage and divide and to marginalize you know communities from each other yeah. um yeah that that's it so we have so april 29th we have the documentary releasing uh let me let me plug this let me throw this up so uh i have www.frenchydreamsofhashish.com mm -hmm. right Okay, so we know that some of the proceeds are going to the Origins Council. And yes. I believe this is who you were speaking about earlier in terms of the group that is working together, compiling these small farmers, um, seeking for an appellation, right? So seeking for that designation. So they're working to uh, do the scientific studies in support of that. The Origins Council also does so much more work around legislative issues, trying to really be the voice of these legacy um, farmers and other, you know, cannabis related companies in California. They represent over 900 different um, companies. They also network with the various um, growers uh, groups uh, from Humboldt, Mendocino, you know, all of the, all of the counties. Yeah. And are really up on all the laws and the changes that are being done both at the county and the state level to be the voice of the small farmer, because there's just so much going on. It's really hard to, you know, defend yourself as a, as a small farmer, who's also, by the way, trying to, to grow, grow crops and stuff. Well, and, and that's, so that brought me to a question because over the last few years, there's been such a change, right? Like such a shift um, with small farmers, like trying to stay afloat, not being able to, and with, um, you know, with land and areas being taken over by, you know, these large grows. So, you know, how is that even working, right? Like, because you're in the process of these studies and trying to make sure that these small farmers are, are supported. But I would imagine along this road, so many have not been able to stay operational. Yeah, it's a real problem. I mean, in Mendocino, um, when it comes to permanent licenses, there's only six at this point, six in the whole county. And they have a backlog. I think it's like 900 people that have permits that have been you know, submitted, that the paperwork hasn't been processed. There's a whole thing recently um, around the local government trying to take a bunch of money that had been earmarked for other 
activities within the, the cannabis space to pay for people to process those licenses. There's just, there's been a real resistance to supporting, you know, the efforts of these farmers. And it's really interesting in California because when you think of it, we do agriculture in California. I, when I think of California, I think of three things. We do agriculture, we do tech, and we do Hollywood. Um, and we did, we know, you know, we're like, what, the fifth largest producer of agricultural products for the whole planet? Wow. And, and that we can't roll out an agricultural product in a way that protects the legacy communities that have been growing this. It's just BS. It, well, and, 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 and it brings us to what we were talking about earlier, like can't or won't. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. is, this, is this the starve out, right? Is this a star because... You know, you get this designation of appellation, right? Um, but then the question becomes, who does it benefit? And that's not to mean that it's not important, right? Like this work has to be done. It has to continue. But I, 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 I imagine it then being an uphill battle of, you know, these, these small farmers trying to either regain or continue to kind of elbow their way into this space and to not be silenced. I think there's an element, you know, when we look at, take like chocolate, for example. So you have the major players like your Hershey's and your Nestle's and some of the European brands, and they occupy the majority of the marketplace. Yeah, the majority of the space. In that the last few years, there have been some Western chocolate manufacturers that have been, I don't want to participate and get get the chocolate from them as distributors because they're not paying living wages to the people who are actually growing and caring for the chocolate in Africa and in um, Latin America. I want to work directly with the, those farmers. And so we have a number of small companies that have started to do that. Good. And as a consumer public, we've become aware more and more about agricultural slavery when it comes yes. to things like coffee and tea and chocolate, yes. cotton and other things that, you know, we, we benefit from here in the West. So I think it's a kind of similar thing that once people understand the model and if they're allowed to do a direct to producer scenario the way that some of these small chocolate businesses are doing with chocolate, I'm willing to pay more for my chocolate. I prefer that single source flavor. I think it's superior. Not everybody does. My my consumption of that, those small producers, I don't think is hardly impacting, you know, the major brands at all. I'm nothing to them. And in my brain, it's like, let them to a degree continue to have their chocolate. Improve the laws that protect the people producing it, though. Yeah. And let me continue to support those small farmers who are producing maybe in a way that's less agriculturally negative, you know, protects their environment, supports their local community, because I'm happy that my efforts support their local community. And I would like to be able to kind of do the same thing with all the local products around me as well. We have that precedent in California. Farm to table is a big thing here. You know, it makes me think of um, just, you know, one's palate, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, prior to prior to um, the global pandemic, uh, my husband and I used to do, we used to take two international trips a year. We actually got married in South Africa, right? 
Um, and so you were speaking about this earlier about the food tasting different. And yeah. so when you know better, those things stick out to you. And so it's, let's make sure we have the craft. We'll, we'll call these small, these small growers, like these are your craft growers. And so for those who have a more developed palate or for those who, um, can appreciate, you know, those nuances and those details and or who once they know better, they just want to do better. Let's make sure that we still have those options available, like for your OG folk, you know, who, <laughs> you know, what I mean, who who know the difference. Um, let's make sure that we have those options available and that it's affordable and that is easy to access. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, so absolutely. Okay. So again, April 29th, good people. Uh, this is coming out. The documentary is coming out. Now I understand attached to that is also the foundation. So, you know, all of the work that I'm doing around his film and this, these projects and their other future projects, it's called all being bundled into this foundational activity. That's, you know, kind of, supporting his educational legacy. I should also say that, so the idea is that we're going to do, when we did the screening in the theaters, we would have a producer's question and answer after yes. the film in the theater. So we're gonna take that model and we're gonna do a live stream. Mm -hmm. And some people are going to be hosting in-person events, ticketed events. Some of the, we have some people in major cities around the world that are gonna be holding events. So I'm going to use a live stream platform that has almost like a Zoom kind of situation where 10 people can be together with me in the screen at the same time. And we're going to tap into some of those live locations, take questions from people who are there, maybe talk to some of the uh, people who are in those live locations about what's going on locally in their community and just have some time together, pass the hookah around virtually uh, after watching the, the film. So we're planning to do that three times to accommodate the three major time zones. So we'll start in Europe. Um, so people will watch the film themselves at 7 p.m. The film's 90 minutes long. After the film's finished, we'll get together on the live stream and hang out for a while. And then a few hours later, we'll do the same thing. It's from seven in, uh, for the East Coast Americas. And then we'll finish up three hours later for the West Coast Americas. And people are welcome to join whichever session they like. We just thought that having three sessions, that allows for a lot of flexibility. It's a Saturday. Some people might want to be with us in the afternoon. Some people might want to join, you know, in the evening. Yeah, absolutely. Make this a part of your smoke session. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Just go ahead and vibe out. It sounds like an amazing time, like you're curating an amazing um, experience. And so for people to stay um, tapped into how to get their tickets, you know, how to virtually tap in, um, they should go to the website. They should go to so the website. There's on the, in the footer, there's a little section down there that has information on the live events, has information on where you can sign up to get an email the day of the event. If you like to share your email with me, I'll send you a link to the Vmail uh, place where you know you can get the ticket and see the film. Um, there's a wealth of information on the on the Frenchy Dreams of Hashish website. 
Perfect, perfect. And then just for those who are, are wondering, what are we looking at in terms of the cost um, to participate? For the ticket? Yes. So we haven't said that yet, but it'll be uh, the same or less than a normal movie ticket. I mean, I think that that's perfect. I mean, here, here's the here's the thing um, to a point that you made earlier in terms of being willing to, to, to pay for quality and to pay for doing good. Um, please, folks, remember that proceeds are going to this study um, that the Origins Council is doing, which is of the utmost importance, right? Like we're trying to preserve craft and quality here. And so this is not just, look, we waste money, we spend money on, <laughs> you know, on a ton of things on a daily basis. You know, once you break that, once you break that 20, the rest of it is gone. <laughs> um, so this is, so this is an investment, right? And if you are really, if you are really an appreciator of the cannabis culture, this is something that is well worth you investing, you donating towards, um, again, the work to preserve quality um, and, and craft growing, you know? So let's just plug that. Let's just say that, that look, I should um, tell you that the on the day of the screening, um, we have a, a group that's been helping me and there will be subtitles available for the film in Spanish, Portuguese, French, Italian, and English because awesome. she needs English subtitles. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I, I feel like you're making this as accessible as it can be. So We're trying. We're definitely, yeah, we put some effort into it. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Again, April 29th is the date. Uh, please go over to FrenchyDreamsOfHashish.com to uh, make sure that you are all tapped in for the release of this documentary. You have three options in terms of time zones of when you'll be able to be a part of the audience and to view it. This is also your way of being a part of some amazing work. Uh, that the Origins Council is doing. And if you want to stay connected, not if, you should stay connected to Frenchie's legacy, please make sure you check out the FB, the IG, the YouTube, uh, Madame Cannoli. Um, you are doing amazing work. Kimberly, your name is Kimberly, okay? So let me just, Thank hey you. everybody, her name is Kimberly Hooks, okay? Um, but you are doing amazing work. Thank you, you are doing amazing work. And especially as we're seeing state by state regulate um, and, and a lot of the, the challenges and complexities with it, I think you're absolutely right that this is very timely, that the release of this is very timely. And um, I, I appreciate you being selfless and sharing, sharing him with us um, and sharing this work with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for giving me the platform today. This has been really lovely. Awesome. Awesome. Anything else you want to leave the people with? I just really am looking forward to celebrating the community on the 29th. I think it's, you know, so important after the pandemic that we continue to connect and we continue to use the plant as a vehicle for better communication and understanding because um, we're all in this together. And I think you know, that's a really important thing to remember. And that's something that the plant tends to, uh, to, to do for us. It brought you and Frenchie together. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> 
All right, good people. Look, again, April 29th, please support. Let's support this. Um, the culture needs it. It's for the culture. And and Frenchie was definitely a man of the culture, uh, a celebrator of the plant, an uplifter of craft and of quality. And so this is an amazing way to show support and to say thank you um, and to give back. And uh, so y'all know what it is. Stay blunt, y'all.